the typical adult gets by with about 3,000 words, a vocabulary of 3,000 words, almost all of them learned by the time we're 11 years old. And here's the interesting question. Do we need to know more words because we have interesting things to say? Or do we have interesting things to say because we know more words? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about a billion dollars worth of vocabulary. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. It's back. The Real Skills Conference is back. An actual conference. You don't have to get on a plane, but you do need to interact face-to-face online from wherever you are. Two hours of interaction on your toes with real people talking about the things that matter, the skills that help us make a difference. Akimbo is back, running it again. To find out more, visit akimbo.com go for all the details. The people you meet will change your life. They say that the Inuit have dozens of words for snow. But you don't have to go to the great white north to discover that. I grew up in Buffalo, New York. We have plenty of words for snow. So does anybody who's ever done Nordic skate skiing or any kind of skiing. We talk about blizzards. We talk about chop. We talk about corduroy. What about flake or hail or ice or blue ice or man-made snow or packed powder or deep powder or spring powder or rotten snow or slop or slush? You get the idea. It turns out that once you know a lot of words for snow, you start to notice that there are a lot of different varieties of snow. That vocabulary works in both directions. That we develop new vocabulary terms when we have ideas that we need to express that are difficult to express with the old words, but also learning new words turns on lights for us. It exposes us to gradations we didn't see before. Artists, painters, know way more colors than normal people. That's because they see colors and need to explain to us what they are seeing. Going from the 12 box to the 64 box of Crayola crayons helps kids discover that there are actually more colors in the world. 27 years ago, Marjorie Mandel and I decided to write a book about vocabulary. Yes, I wrote a dictionary with help from Marjorie. Why did we do this? Well, there was a letter in the New York Times, and the letter, two paragraphs long, was filled with words I didn't know what they meant. Me, with my fancy college education, was busy looking at this letter, and I couldn't understand a third of the words. I decided to look them up. And what I discovered was that the person who had written the letter was a bit of a pedant. Pedant? That the person, how do I pronounce that word? Hold on. It turns out that the person who had written the letter was a bit of a pedant, someone who is pedantic, someone who is using words to get in the way of his commentary, which actually was sort of foolish once I understood what he was trying to say. But in so many other cases, I discovered that once you knew a word, 
you could be precise. And if you could be precise, you had to break down what you meant to say. So Marjorie and I pitched this book, which I called Million Dollar Words, to Running Press. Well, there were a thousand words in it. That's a billion dollars if you do the math. The book was in print for a total of two weeks. Our editor had left the firm, and right after the book came out, it disappeared. Alert listeners to this podcast can pick up their free copy digitally by visiting akimbo.link. Some of the words in million-dollar words are actually million-dollar words that meet my criteria. For example, Buildings Roman, B-I-L-D-U-N-G, Buildings Roman, is a novel of education, something like Catcher in the Rye. Knowing that there is a category for this kind of book helps us realize that this kind of book is a kind, a genre, a type, something worth exploring. It helps us realize that narratives about education are critical for lots and lots of people who bother to read books. There is no equivalent for books about skiing, and for good reason, because they're not aligned. Knowing that the category exists helps us do better going forward. On the other hand, a word like bisextile, not particularly helpful. We put it in the book because it's sort of clever. It is about anything that happens on February 29th. I have no idea why bisextile would mean something that happens once every four years on leap year, but it does. That's just about showing off. That's not really a million-dollar word, but you get it included with all thousand of the million-dollar words. But as long as we're working our way through the bees, how about the word blue stocking? A blue stocking is a woman who didn't go to a fancy college, who doesn't have a fancy education, who devotes herself to literary or scholarly pursuits. Today, this is a hopelessly outdated term. It shouldn't be applied to one gender or the other. But think back to the Westerns of the 50s that referred back to the Western life of the 1850s, where there weren't that many women in any of those fictional towns. But the school marm was certainly a blue stocking. Some words have been transformed over time. We need to understand their origin so we can get back to what was intended. The word boondoggle didn't originally refer to an expensive business trip for no good reason, back when we could take business trips. It originally referred to busy work. As the late David Graeber wrote in his book about dead-end jobs, we have created an enormous number of boondoggles as we have industrialized the world. And once we can see a boondoggle, it's hard to unsee it. And one more, as long as I'm reading the bees to you, Bowdlerize, named after Thomas Bowdler. Bowdler took it upon himself to cleanse out the offensive parts of what he was reading, particularly William Shakespeare, that well-known pornographer. Bowdlerizing continues to happen all around us, and yes, it deserves a name, because censorship means something totally different. Words are containers containers for ideas. And without a container, it's hard to see the idea. Again, what I'm arguing for here is not to show off by knowing a lot of words that have a bunch of syllables to them. How are you going to understand how computers work if terms like TCPIP or peer-to-peer -peer or packets mean nothing to you? Learn the vocabulary 
Now the light can go on for you to learn the concept. Yes, we can look it all up on Google. Yes, Google Translate is an easy way to move something from one language to another. But no, Google doesn't help us understand. The amount of information in our world is exploding, and it has been exploding my entire life. Since you began listening to this short rant of a podcast, more podcasts have been created than you would be able to listen to if you did nothing but listen to podcasts for the next six months of your life. We cannot keep up. It doesn't do us any good to try to keep up. But what we can do is start to understand concepts. That instead of racing through the 3,000 words that we all know, we can understand that the next circle of words, the circle of words that are known by people who know things about their topic, are worth learning. Not because we want to impress them. We can impress them by using a thesaurus before we send them an email. No, we want to do it because a word points to a container and the container holds the concept. And understanding the concept is critical because we do not want to be spoon-fed. We want to choose our own ideas and dissect them on our own, to choose to understand so we can build upon it. If you want to find someone who truly understands a genre, a category, a way to do work, find someone who has a vocabulary that they can defend, that they can take apart and put back together. Learn their vocabulary and you can begin to learn the concepts. Why we even have a term like corduroy. A skier can tell you, but someone who hasn't skied probably has no clue. So short of strapping on your boots, one of the best ways to understand how skiers make decisions is to start to understand what corduroy even is. Find the words, understand the words, and then build a conceptual framework around the words. So there you go, an antediluvian defense of why it's worth learning a billion dollars worth of words, even if you can get the PDF for free. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Keep them short and direct, and I'll do my best to get to them. Here we go. 
Hey Seth, this is Sean from Columbia, Missouri. In your last podcast about curation, it seemed by the end of the episode, you were fully for um, essentially having these these big tech and the people developing the, the code to push people back into the mainstream. However, you also seem to talk about how there is benefit to curating uh, someone towards the long tail if it's related to you know something they're passionate about. And so I wonder, is there a, a balance to find where maybe we're not pushing to people to the political extremes, but we can still help people find the obscure extreme passions that might really make them happy? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks. Thank you for this. Here's the deal. Google, quoted in today's newspaper, said, we can't police the internet. Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. How can you close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. There they are, wringing their hands, like in Casablanca, unbelieving that there are bad actors on the web and that some of them are acting the way they do, perhaps because of Google. Well, of course they are, because in many ways, Google is the Internet. And those folks who post revenge porn or do, quote, reputation management wouldn't even exist if it weren't for the power of Google's search algorithm. So I think the tech companies have to take responsibility. They are not innocent bystanders. And the way that they push people in one direction or another, you can call it curation, I might call it the discovery algorithm, is their responsibility and a problem for all of us. So you are right, as the author of books like We Are All Weird and Tribes and Poke the Box, I think cool things happen when we have niches when we are able to make things that matter for people who care, when we can find small groups of people and help them get to where they want to go. But there's, for me anyway, a really clear dividing line. The question is, if people get more into this, if they become more obsessed or more particular, if their otaku gets louder and louder, will the rest of us suffer or benefit? So if you go to Comic-Con, which each year before the pandemic got more and more outlandish with costumes, with people going into the trivia of various science fiction things, with cosplay and the rest of it, I'm not sure it hurt anybody else. And I'm pretty sure that the people there were delighted to be part of it. I think if we find people who are arguing about the finer points of page 18 of the original edition of Dune and I don't know how to pronounce Benny Gesserit. Well, I don't have any problem with that either. That is enjoyable. It takes us far down a rabbit hole that makes our culture more diverse and interesting. On the other hand, if a porn site is pushing people further and further into things like incest or violence, I think it's pretty likely that other people are going to suffer because of this propaganda. And it is propaganda in the sense that the algorithm is pushing people to do things they wouldn't do if they weren't constantly indoctrinated by what 
the algorithm is pushing them to experience. And I think we can see the same thing in certain cable TV networks. So for me, the dividing line is pretty clear. If the cultural shift that the algorithm is causing causes discomfort or pain for people who are outside of the circle, if it divides us when it needs to unite us, then it's a problem for all of us. It's a public mental health problem. And I think that they should take responsibility for it because it wasn't there before they showed up. That media is powerful and marketing is powerful. That's part of the reason why companies spend money on it, because it works. And so just because a computer is doing it, not a person, well, that computer was programmed by a person. And so, yeah, that's a rant, but that's my feeling about it. Hey, Seth, this is Anna from outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I would love to hear your thoughts on influencers in marketing. So let me tell you a little bit about why I'm asking this question. The first part is that my sister, who is an interior architect, recently has hit it big on TikTok and is now considered an influencer. There are companies who are sending her products for free so that she'll make videos about them, which is really amazing. And because she's such an amazing professional and person of integrity, I feel the need to tell you that she has only promoted products that she feels good about and that she identifies with in terms of her brand. I know that's not the case for all influencers. What I'm noticing about what's going on here is this very clear transactional relationship. She has an audience who trusts her and likes her. These companies are seeking to sell their products to her audience. She would like to get free products that she likes. And so it's this win-win-win transactional relationship. The second part of this thinking for me is about my own career and life, which is in the nonprofit sector. And I'm wondering about how we can leverage influencers in terms of causes instead of products. So I'm really wondering, do you have some thoughts about influencers and marketing and how folks like me might take advantage, leverage this phenomenon, folks who are not interested in selling things for profit, but selling ideas for momentum? Thanks, Seth. Thank you for this question, Anna, and thanks for the work you do. You're bringing up a couple words that I think are worth exploring. One of them is influencers, and the other one is influenced. So all of us are influenced, and the question is, by what? So if we go up to a stranger in a city and offer them money to do something with us that's illegal, they are being motivated simply by money. That's why it's illegal. On the other hand, if we go on a date with somebody over and over again because we think they're cute, we enjoy their company, and they take us to fancy restaurants, that's considered romantic. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that when money shows up, because people have a very powerful story about money, we start to tell ourselves stories that go along with the money. We start to tell ourselves, well, yeah, I would promote this on my Instagram or TikTok for free, but I'm getting paid money. Isn't that a nice bonus? The challenge, of course, is you wouldn't do it for free because you weren't doing it before they showed up to offer you money. 
And so money starts to change our perception of what we think is good and how we spend our time. Kevin Kelly has a great rubric he uses for making decisions about things like speaking gigs far in the future. Someone asks him to do something in nine months. He says to himself, if it was tomorrow, would I say yes? Because it's easier for people to say yes to something in the distant future. You can add to that, if it was for free, would I say yes? And if you can actually and honestly use that calculus, you can make a different sort of decision. So there are some people who have taken a head start online and figured out how to make money being a, I'll put it in quotes, responsible influencer in the sense that they support things they get paid for, but they don't go overboard. And if they're able to do that in a consistent way, then it doesn't hurt their brand or where they're going. So someone like Tim Ferriss runs ads on his podcast in which he's reading them for products that he uses for which he's getting paid a bunch of money. And it doesn't hurt his relationship with his listeners because it's part of the promise of who he is and what he does. On the other hand, if someone like Oprah started taking money for the books that she recommends, well, pretty soon she'd be recommending books that maybe wouldn't rise to the same level. So it gets really complicated really fast. So now to answer your question. For a nonprofit, you already have influencers. They're just not influenced by money. And this is the key to the whole thing, that the nonprofit that you run has people who are supporting you. They're sending you money. They're sending you volunteer hours. They're talking about you in the community. Why? Are you paying them? No, of course not. But there's still something in it for them. And as I wrote about in This Is Marketing, it's affiliation and status. Affiliation, there's something in it for me to feel like I'm in sync, like I'm doing what the others are doing, like I'm not falling behind. And status, there's something in it for me to be a leader. There's something in it for me to be seated at the head table. And so the art of almost everything that we do in culture, except for cash payments to TikTok influencers, the art is to offer people non-financial influence, non-financial payment that makes them eagerly decide to support the cause, not because they're doing some simple math about money, but because they're doing complicated math about culture and belonging and doing work that matters. Now, the beauty of this is it's more resilient. You're not going to be easily outbid. It is transparent in the sense that we imagine that others, like us, are making decisions based on their beliefs, their desires, their love, their connection, not based on whether or not they got money under the table. That's why we don't approve of bribery by government officials, yet government officials are influenced all the time. We don't want a government official who is never influenced because then they won't pay attention to what voters want. We want them to be influenced, just not quite so directly. So thanks for exploring this. High fives to your sister and good luck with the work. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker 
at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.